All right, Revelation 19, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 21. The destruction of Babylon has taken place throughout Revelation 17 through 19. So this fifth cycle has primarily focused in on the destruction of Babylon. Uh, But now we turn to the minions of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet, as we will see their destruction. They were used as agents, the beast and the false prophet, were actually used as agents to bring about the destruction of Babylon, as we saw. And Babylon has been utterly and completely laid waste, we have seen. We've gotten this little interlude there, which shows the protection of the saints at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They, they, they celebrate, they enjoy, it is a feast. They have, the, 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 bride, the, the king has come to consummate his bride, and there is a, a feast, a celebration. And the last wine is better than the first. But what goes from a marriage feast, now the scene changes to a war, to a battle. This second coming of Christ is known as the parousia, which means coming. And it's seen from the perspective of the conquering king, coming to destroy his enemies and establish his reign forever. I just find it amazing that you go from so quickly from a scene of joy and celebration to a, mean, a, a, to a, a scene of utter bloodshed and terror. The reason I think that's so important is because both the marriage supper of the Lamb and the last battle, the war, and the coming of Christ, they are both pictures of the same salvation. Salvation is twofold. It is both the intimacy and joy of the marriage feast. And it is, all, it is also the intensity and the aggressiveness of a war against evil. It's both. Salvation is both the embrace of love and the assault of evil. It's both. We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And as we will see, this picture is so important because we go from the feast to the fight. And brothers and sisters, what we see at the end of the age, a picture of the feast to the fight, is actually what happens at the, every Lord's Day. We gather to feast at the table and then we leave to the fight. We come here to gather at the table to eat of the supper where we spiritually receive the life of Christ in order to then leave and enter the battle to fight in the strength of Christ. So what we see at the end where we go from feast to fight is actually precisely what we get a foreshadow of every week we're alive. Where we come to the feast on the Lord's Day. And we enter the fight on Monday. And we come back to feast and we go to fight. And we come back to feast and we go to fight. So you see a picture here. 
So let's look at the battle. Let's look at this amazing scene of the King of Glory bursting over the hills to come and rescue His bride once and for all, to destroy evil once and for all. It is the battle of Helm's Deep in Tolkien's story. It is the last battle in the Narnia story. Both of them are pictures of what we see here. For Tolkien, it was Aragorn riding over the hill to defeat Sauron's army once and for all. For Lewis, it was Aslan bursting and defeating the enemies once and for all to reclaim Narnia, to reclaim what he created. And that's what this battle is. This battle is not merely a picture of just Christ going to just lay waste. It's Christ going to reclaim what's his. Once and for all. Forever. All of those pictures, those old covenant promises of the King coming to destroy all of the enemies of God's people and to usher in a kingdom of peace and a government of peace which would reign forever and ever. This is it. This is it. This is the second part of Zechariah 9 we will see. Zechariah 9.9 says he would ride in on a donkey. Zechariah 9.10 says he will speak peace to the nations and bring them all under his fault. He did one in the first coming. Now, he doesn't come on a donkey, but he comes on a steed as a victorious king. So let's read the text together and uh, see what it has for us this evening. Revelation 19.11-21 Then I saw heaven opened, Behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its present had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What a picture. What a scene. And the danger 
of this, as I would say, most of the danger of Revelation is refusing the symbols to be symbols. And reading this with such a literalism that it actually kind of takes away from the triumph. And so we need to really press into the symbols here that John has given. John has a view of the victorious king and the best he can do is to just give us symbols that that might help us understand the magnitude of this victory, the magnitude of this judgment that is coming. Because this is a picture. Everything about these symbols are a picture of the fact that the king has come to judge. That's That's what the battle is. That's what the destruction is. It isn't him literally coming and just like taking a sword and whacking people's head off. That's about the lowest thing you could expect from the king of kings. He didn't need to do that. He spoke the cosmos into being with a word. Think he needs to like physically fight people? Think about that. No. All the pictures of bloodshed and devouring. This is picture of judgment. A perfect judgment which he brings upon the nations of those who reject him. So let's look at these beautiful symbols and pictures. And what's so fascinating is as I have read Revelation, this is a bit of a a rabbit trail, but why not? It's been a while. I have become wholly convinced in my heart. Can I prove it? Nope. But I'm convinced in my heart that John received the revelation before he wrote the gospel. And I believe that's the reason why John writes his gospel the way he does. Not because he was reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke and said, you know what, I I need to do something different. I think he had such a high view of Jesus. And based upon this text, he could say in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen Him, the glory of the only begotten Son. There's a reason why he would use seven signs to detail the divinity of Christ in those book of signs, chapters 1 through 12. It's a reason why over half the gospel is focused on nothing but the Passion Week. Why? Cosmic conflict. The king has come to beat the devil, to beat the dragon. So I think, like I have become wholly convinced, the more that I've read the language of Revelation, that John wrote his gospel, not first, but perhaps even last, But I believe that he received this revelation first. And I believe it's why his epistles are so so much about perseverant love. And not giving in. Why Why he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist. That there are many already at play. It's because he got this vision first. And everything else flowed out of it. A true vision of Christ and a true life for Christ. Flowed out of a vision of Christ. So I've just become convinced of that and no one's going to change my mind on it unless they can find scrolls or something that that says otherwise. But I'm just, that's my conviction. I think everything about John's gospel and his letters flow out of the glorious reality of what he has seen and the glorious reality of who his Savior is in the King of Glory. So let's look at first uh, verses 11 through 16 where we see the King of Glory triumphantly arriving for the battle. He's arriving for battle. 
And there are a few things that we see here. And the first thing that we are given attention to after we get introduced to the vision is we see, behold, a white horse. So the first thing we see is his steed. Once again, not a donkey this time. Now, it's important. He had to ride on a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9 fulfills that prophecy. Also, right, with that triumphal entry, the, the picture of riding on the donkey was a coronation ride. He was coming to be crowned. That's what the cross was all about. That crown of thorns is actually very powerful and important. Jesus really was crowned at Calvary. But He had to be crowned through the cross. That's why it wasn't a crown of gold. It was a crown of thorns. So He, was, he went to be crowned and now He comes as a victorious King. He comes saying the, 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 the victory is fully being accomplished now. What I started going to Calvary, I'm now finishing in this parousia, this, this coming. And he comes in victory. A picture of a war horse here that is seen. Now, do I think that, the, that he's literally going to ride out of heaven on a horse? I don't think so. That's just me. If someone else takes that stance, it's okay. I just don't think so. Just like I don't think he's going to come and slay a bunch of people who are trying to fight him on horses. It's like I don't think we're going to go back to the dark ages in our technology. It's just, I don't think that's going to happen. But that's just me. That's your view. It's okay. But I, the picture here of him riding on a horse, a white horse, is a picture of him coming out of heaven in victory. And whiteness in the, the book of Revelation symbolizes purity and holiness. So what's being pictured here is the victory and vindication of holiness. So much in this world, it looks like holiness loses. It looks like purity doesn't stand a chance. It looks like the people of God have been crushed by the enemy. And by him bursting out on the picture of a white horse, the picture is no, holiness does win. Purity does win in the end. It is victorious. Because the very king who will come to establish it will ride out in purity and holiness and victory. Next thing that we see here in this text, this triumphant arrival, is his names. Four names are given in this section of verses 11 through 16. The first thing we see is right there in verse 11. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. And they go hand in hand, right? Faithfulness is the picture that He will absolutely fulfill everything that He has promised. And the fact that He is everything that He promised. He's not just a fulfillment of these wonderful promises. He is the wonderful promises. He is the sum and substance of all of God's promises. All of God's salvation, all of God's peace, all of God's joy is summed up in the person of King Jesus. He is faithful and true. John 8, 31-32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Revelation 1.5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Revelation 3.7, the words of the Holy One, the true one. Revelation 3.14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. I love this because when Christ returns, right, that will be it. There will ne- That's why when Christ returns, Paul says faith and hope are going to cease. Because there's no more promises to be fulfilled. There's nothing else to look forward to in the sense of fulfillment. It's done. But love will remain. He is faithful and true. Everything God has promised will come to pass. And it will come to pass in absolute perfection the way God says so. No one... No one, when they get to glory, when Christ returns, there isn't a Christian in this world that is going to go, man, I'm mad that I wasn't right about this. No one's going to say, man, I can't believe I argued for that specific millennial position. And I was wrong. Listen, if I'm wrong about my millennial position, I don't care. I don't care. I I, I I hold it because I think it's what the Scripture teaches. But if Christ comes and wants to set up an earthly kingdom and reign, guess what? I'm going to be with Him. I'm okay with that. I'm not going to be like, oh man, darn. Being right is not as important as being with Him. No one is going to get there and go, man, I had some of the details wrong. No, you're just going to be so overwhelmed that you get to see Him in all of His glory. That's all that's going to matter. He's faithful and true. Every bit of His Word will come to pass. Every bit of it in the fullness of His coming. He is the Amen. I love that. He's the end of it. He's the Amen of all God's promises. He is faithful and true. Secondly, the second name we see down in verse 12. It says that He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. Now this gets a little tricky. Because there's been three other names that were given in this text that he's not shy about. He's faithful and true. He is the Word of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, so what is this secret name all of a sudden that just seems to kind of come out of nowhere? My belief in this, and there's a lot of scholarly debate, but that this name that no one else knows is a picture That there is something that is going to be uniquely shared with the people of God in the consummation regarding the fullness of the covenantal faithfulness of Christ that we don't even know about Him yet. That there are going to be aspects of Christ that we can't know until in glory, till we're in glory. That there is going to be aspects of His identity and who He is and His covenant faithfulness that we can't know until the consummation. Give you an interesting text. Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. We read this. This is the Lord talking to Moses. He says, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So I made myself known to them 
by the name El Shaddai. That's what God Almighty means. I, I let them know myself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not let them know my name. What does he mean by that? What, is, what does he mean when he says that I didn't let them know my name, Yahweh? Do I think that God was purposely keeping like himself back or he didn't want them to actually know his name or that there was some kind of sacred thing about them saying Yahweh that would have caused them to get burned up or something? No. This is what I think. I think when he's saying that they did not know me by my name, Yahweh, it's not that they didn't know his name was Yahweh. It's that they never got to experience in this life the fullness of his covenant faithfulness. Was God covenantly faithful to them? Yeah. But what does Hebrews 11 said? They left this earth not obtaining that which they looked forward to. There was still something future about God that they couldn't fully grasp, that they didn't fully know. And guess who that is? It's Jesus. They looked forward to him. They saw him through veiled types and shadows. They looked forward to him, but they never got the fullness of him in this life. They looked to a city which they did not obtain. They knew God Almighty. They knew Jehovah Jireh. They knew El Elyon. But the fullness of Yahweh, they did not experience. Why? Because they had yet to behold Jesus. And that's precisely what Pastor Freddie said today. When we see Jesus talking to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In order to know the fullness of the name of Yahweh, you must see and know Jesus. And I believe that the fullness of Yahweh will not be experienced until the, co- the consummation. Which James says literally, then you will behold face to face Him. Face to face. He will not have to hide you in a rock. He will see Him. And that name, which no one knows but himself, will now be known. And this is what's promised. Look at what he says to the churches in Revelation. Revelation 2.17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. That, that stuff which hasn't been revealed. My God, or, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Revelation 3.12, never shall he go out and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. So in glory, you will know this name. But you can't know until glory. Because then you will experience the fullness of Yahweh in the triune God in a way that hasn't been experienced since Eden. But even better, because now Christ in glorified body will actually bear wounds. Think about that. Sometimes it makes me wonder that that God created the the literal biological scarring process just for the sake of His glory. Like there's a reason we scar the way we do. 
just because when he would take upon flesh, those scars would remain. And they will be scars of glory forever. Then we will know that name fully. But until now, we don't know. Thirdly, his name is the Word of God. He says there at the end of 13, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Uh, this is, we all know John 1, right? We've already talked about that. I think this is right. I think this is where John gets it. I think that whole opening prologue is nothing more than a summary of revelation for John. I think that's what it is. It's the fullness of this pictured here now of what we're seeing. And this is where he gets it from. He is the Word of God. Not a word from God. He is the Word of God. Revelation 1-2. He who bore witness... Notice how Revelation does this. Everywhere... Revelation writes the Word of God, it immediately follows it with the testimony of Jesus. So Revelation 1-2, who bore witness to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1-9, John who was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 20 verse 4, which we'll see next week. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. They're always together. Why? Because the Word of God is the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Word of God. God gave us a living Word in Christ and a written Word, which is ultimately a reflection of what? Him. Points us to Him. Brings us to Him. Walks, grows us up in Him. Shows us how to walk in Him. Abide in Him. Live in Him. It's all about, He's the center of it. He's the centerpiece. He is the Word of God. And so any word that's drawing you away from Jesus isn't the Word of God. It's not. Everything it points us to Him, the Word of God. For He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We see that there at the end of verse 16. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, there's no need to break those up. They mean the same thing. All authority on heaven and on earth have been given to me. He bows to no one. He is secondhand to no one. All authority is his. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. You've got to really believe that. Because if you've got anxiety, you need to know you belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If, you, if you're so desirous of trying to get vengeance of someone, you need to remember you belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you feel inadequate in your calling, you need to remember you've been called by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you think the gospel loses, you need to be reminded it belongs to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you think that Evil is going to get the, the bigger brunt of it. You forget that you belong to the evil, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I do believe that heaven will have more than hell. I believe it. I don't believe it's just right down the middle. I don't. An innumerable multitude, which no man can number, I think we'll be amazed at what Jesus does. 
Do I believe it gets intense? Yes, but I would tell you what, brothers and sisters, like I said when we were going through Acts, there are more professing Christians that are alive today than there were people alive when that word was first given. We've got to have a bigger view of Jesus and a bigger view of his salvation because that will keep you from cowering in fear when you go and tell people about the gospel. It will keep you from sweating and fretting over every election. It will keep you from worrying about which flag is going to be flying next week and not. Or where this country will be in 10 years or in 100 years or in one year. When you know you belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you believe that? Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. He will conquer them. Does that mean the world's going to just all of a sudden just become Christianized and everything's going to be better? That'd be wonderful. I don't think that's going to happen. But do I think the gospel is going to be utterly, overwhelmingly victorious and the same light that saves will harden the rest? Yes. And that's what's going to create such division and such animosity is because the dividing line will be so clear. There won't be this middle of the road wish-washiness. There won't be. It will just be all of Jesus or none are against Him. That's it. That's what it will be. That's, that's, that's a, I hope it gets that way. It's nice when the lines are clear. It's nice when it's that way. It's nice when churches have to be churches. It's nice when Christians have to be Christians. They don't just get to sit on the fence and skate by. But they realize we are in a real battle every day. And one of the worst things that has happened in Christianity is by putting all the battle stuff off to the end. Because it just makes you think, I'm not in a battle today. That, that stuff happens all at the end. I, I just get to live in peace now. And salvation is just me and myself and my heart. No. It's an everyday onslaught against the evil of the world. That's, right. That's what we do. Every day. The onslaught of evil within me and without me. It's taking the gospel, the word of God, directly to it. Every day. Every day you've got to be fighting. Not because you're fighting for it. Because you're fighting from it. You're fighting from the fact that you belong to the rider of the white horse. And his holiness and purity wins. So he is faithful and true. The name no one knows but himself. The word of God. King of kings and Lord of lords. And now look at his descriptions we see here. The first one we get back in near the beginning. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This once again goes back to the nature of his judgment. The picture of the fact that he sees all things. All things are before his eyes. Nothing is hidden from him. Literally, the, the picture here is literally there are lamps of fire in his eyes. He beholds all things. He sees all things. He uncovers all things. Everything in your heart, every thought, every deed, every bad reflection that you've had is before his eyes. It's all before his eyes. There's nothing he doesn't see. He sees it all. He sees you when you're suffering. People say, well, what about this child that's 
the, 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 the molestations of the world and, and the sex trafficking and all of those things. He sees. You better believe He sees. And He will act with a vengeance like no other. He sees. And His eyes are like flaming fire. He is the perfect judge. There is no surprise evidence that gets entered late into the court session. Everything is seen. Everything is is wrong. He is faithful and true. All the witnesses there are put forth for Him in faithfulness. There is no injustice in the courtrooms of glory. His eyes are like flames of fire. Secondly, on His head were many diadems. A reflection of the fact that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. This, uh, in many ways... uh, the fact that it's not numbered is important. Because remember, the only other people who have been seen with crowns on their head in Revelation are the dragon and the beast. Denoting their counterfeit. The beast is said to have, or excuse me, the dragon is said to have ten crowns on his head, which seems like a lot, right? Ten kings' authority over the earth. It's perceived authority. It's counterfeit authority. But the fact that the, the, the number, the amount of the diadems aren't even numbered, is simply to just denote the fact that it is His authority is beyond anything comprehensible. All authority, all diadems, all kingship, all lordship, it all belongs to Him. Isaiah 62, 2-3 The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The picture here of the many diadems is simply a reflection that when Christ returns in Christ, the fullness of divine authority, all of God's authority, the creator of the cosmos is found in the returning king. He is a royal diadem in the hand of God to establish His eternal kingdom in consummating glory forever. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We see that's in verse 13. Now there are many who've speculated on what this, who, what the blood is. Is the blood His own? Um, is the blood the, the, the picture of the saints that have been martyred and He comes wearing their blood as a picture of His vindication? And, or is it the blood of those He tramples? And I believe it's the latter. I believe it's the picture of His judgment on the nations. It's their blood that is being symbolically portrayed here. And the reason why I get that is Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63 verse 1 through 6 gives us a picture of the day of the Lord. The coming of his wrath. We read, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. The Lord answers, It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? The Lord answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained on my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked... 
but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's where this is coming from. I love that because the Lord is saying He is the sole agent of judgment. No one was there to help me. I alone did it. Now we're going to see a picture of their armies are coming and things like that. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know that when you ride out of glory with Christ, you are not coming to slay. You are coming to, uphold, to watch and behold the Lord of glory and His victory. Because you'll be coming and singing praises of the glorious King who rides out in victory and vindication. The picture here of the stained garments of blood is a picture that He has executed the judgment. It's executed. It's it's done. The judgment is complete. The winepress of wrath has been pressed. And the judgment is over. And I love that. And this is why I go back to the fact that the slaying of the enemy is not a literal one where he's literally just coming and lopping off heads and arms. Because notice, he stained in their blood before the battle ever started. Why? Because when he comes, the victory's already there. It's already won. The very fact of his coming, it's over. It's over. And in their foolishness, they will try to come against it, but it's over. He comes with the victory already guaranteed in His clothing. He will speak and it will be over. He will speak and they will bow. He will speak and they will lay down every arm. He will do it. He will do it. To think He will need to do anything less is to undermine who He is. The one who hung the galaxies by His very word of mouth must need to go toe-to-toe with beast and false prophet? Get out of here. No. He will speak and they will surrender. So He comes out of heaven with the victory already on Him. But the judgment already guaranteed. It says next, a sharp sword comes from His mouth. We see that there at the opening of verse 15. And that's what He will strike down the nations with. We see this coming out of the Old Testament prophecies. The first being Isaiah 11, which talks about this this branch which will come from the stump of Jesse, which will rise up. And Isaiah 11, 4 says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah 49, verse 2 through 6, now talking about the servant to come who is going to be the Messiah. It says, But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Or, excuse me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. 
But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Second Thessalonians 2.8, Paul writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You see what Paul says? There won't need to be a fight. He'll bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's how he's going to destroy him. I don't think you have a clue. We don't have a clue. We can't fathom. What it will be like when literally the spectrum between heaven and earth completely opens. When, it all, when that veil disappears in a moment. That, that, that spiritual realm is all around us. Who do you know that? Like It's all around us. What happens when all of a sudden that veil that was once separated between like Elijah and a servant, and they were able to see it through a moment? When that just disappears in a moment. And all the cosmic realities just are made clear. And the glory of the king is revealed. I promise you, all arms will be laid down. He will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And what does he slay? With the sword that comes from his mouth. Jesus wages war by what he says. And what he says is an extension of who he is. He's the word of God. You know, at the end of that passage that Freddie read this morning, when it talked about Christ growing, referring to his human nature, and it said that he grew in favor with the Lord. Does that mean like the father didn't love him? No. What it meant was, is that by his time in the word, he was growing into who he was. He's growing into who he was. Think about that. He was, by being in the word, he was growing into who he was to be. And I would say by being in the word, you grow into who you're called to be. He wages war by his word. And that's very important, brothers and sisters. Because this Bible is the weapon of our warfare. This word is the weapon of our warfare. This is the strongest, most powerful, sharpest, greatest, most effective weapon that has ever been given to humanity. Is the word of God. This is how sinners are slayed. Every one of you in this room that has surrendered your life to Christ, this is how you lost that battle and won the victory in Christ. Your heart got slayed by this word. And so to try and go and win the war with any other means is a guaranteed loss. 
Does that mean don't go out there and care for people? Nope. That just means that when people ask why you care, you better give them the word. That means that you better prioritize the word as the basis of your giving, as the basis of your benevolence. Because there's no winning without the word. There's just waiting. We're just waiting. W-A-D-I-N-G. Waiting in the water. Not winning. The word is how we win. How will you win the spiritual victories in your life? Give him the word. What's the only hope of that wayward child, of that wayward friend, that wayward neighbor of coming to Jesus? You've got to give him the word. And guess what? They don't like it. Because it hurts. It convicts. It pierces. It cuts. That's when you know, it's like, man, that might be working. And I would say that if you are sitting, I don't care how long you've been saved. If you're sitting in a a church service and you're never cut, and you're never pierced, and you're never convicted, you're probably not getting the word. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He's talking about his word. He's talking about the gospel. A sword which will divide families, loved ones, he says, cities, neighbors. What's the dividing of the gospel? And I believe that the gospel wins. I do. I don't think that's being optimistic. I just think that's what the text says. That he will slay by the sword of his mouth. He will slay by the word of God. The the, the word of God is victorious. It is victorious. And, And so, you know why every knee will bow and every tongue confess? Because the word of God will be shown to be true. Literally, men going to judgment will bow and profess the word of God. The word of God is the sharp sword that comes from his mouth. It is the dividing line of humanity. It is the way in which Christ wages war. It's why he tells Peter, put that away. There's no need for that here. You're going to go fight a war, but not this way. And when they were cloaked on high with the Holy Spirit, they were set forth in battle. Notice, God did not, God did not sharpen their swords or give them weapons in the worldly sense. He didn't give them money. What does Peter say? Silver and gold I do not have. What's the first thing God does when He sends the Holy Spirit? He opens their mouth. He empowers their tongues. Reverses the curse of Babel. Why? Because he wages the war with the word and he wins the war with the word. So stay with the word. Five. We see another description. Now we see that his name is written on his thigh. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords is written on his thigh. It's tattooed on his thigh. And do I think the Lord's rolling out with a nice, you know, tattoo there? With, you know, some Playfair display font? Right on the inner leg? No. What's the picture here? What is the significance of a thigh? Well, first, it's 
where a sword would be placed in battle. So you read in Ehud and in Judges 3.16, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. So this is where a sword was bound for the battle. was on the thigh. It's a place of power, of strength, where the sword is concealed. That's where Jesus' name is. But that's not the only significance of the thigh. It's also the place where a covenant is made. It's where a hand is placed for a covenant. It's where the sword is placed for a battle. It's where the hand is placed for a covenant. We see this in a lot in Genesis. Genesis 24, 2. And Abram said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, this is Genesis 47, 29, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Why did people put their right hand under somebody's thigh? That seems kind of weird. But it's because what a covenant meant. That's a place for a sword. And what the person is saying is, when I make covenant with you, if I break it, it's literally me taking my own life. It's, it's worth me dying. I deserve, this, I deserve the sword if I break this covenant. So it's a place of power and it's a place of faithfulness. And brothers and sisters, the name of Christ is both. His name is power and His name is faithfulness. That's why his name is tattooed on the thigh. The war will be won by the name of Christ. By the fact that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is power in his name. There is victory in his name. And there is faithfulness in his name. He is faithful and true. And he would rather himself go to the sword than to break the covenant with his people. He cannot do so. My friends, there is power in the name of Jesus. There is faithfulness in the name of Jesus. And so when you declare that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, you are saying that He is both powerful and faithful, victorious and truthful. He will be absolutely victorious in accomplishing all that He is and all I need to know is His name. All I need to know is His name. There is power in His name. That's why, that's why literally Paul, or excuse me, Peter could say in Acts 14, no other name under heaven can men be saved by than the name of Jesus. Why? Because there's power, victory, forgiveness, peacefulness, safety, refuge, all in His name and no other. His name alone. There is no other name. That's why it is seen tattooed on His thigh here. A picture of his power, of his victory, of his faithfulness. His authority is what guarantees the victory in the battle, and his authority is what guarantees his faithfulness to the promises. Powerful and faithful. Then, lastly, or excuse me, second to last, we see his armies. We read in verse 14 in the armies of heaven. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, who are these armies of heaven? 
There are some who simply limit it to the angelic beings. And, and why not, right? Matthew 16, 27, Mark chapter 8, 2 Thessalonians 1, says that He will return with His host of angels. He will return with His heavenly armies of angels to judge the living and the dead. But is it just angels? I would say to you, no. Revelation 17, 14 says that when He rides out to conquer, He rides with those who are chosen and faithful. That's the saints. Meaning, I believe this is why that word, the heavens, plural, or the armies of heaven, plural, are a reflection of both the angels and the saints that ride with Him in glory. They will behold the vindication of holiness and the victory of their King. But why this is so important that we are riding with Him, it's because, brothers and sisters, salvation is not only something that God does in us, it's something that God does through us. So you're given a mission. You are a means by which God saves people. God not only saves, has salvation in us, He works salvation through us. You are a means, an instrument of mercy, a means of grace for God to the world. And this is why we ride out with Him to conquer. Because right now, you are actively working through the triumphal procession of Christ into the nations by proclaiming the gospel to those around you. You are a part of that triumphal procession. That's why you'll be in the victory parade. It'll all be Him. You'll throw all the crowns back at him. But he works salvation not just in you, but through you. That should empower you to service. It should empower you to faithfulness. That he is not just working salvation in you, he's working it through you. You are a hand of God to others. An extension of him to others. An extension of Christ. There's a reason why he calls you his body. Because where he goes, you go. Where he spreads, you spread. And that's why, whether it's the body of Christ in Malaysia or in China or in India or in America or in Canada or in Australia or in, in, in Cambodia or in Mongolia or in South Africa or in Zimbabwe, wherever you go, there is the triumphal procession of Christ. There's his body. And it's extending all over the world. It is right now growing and expanding over the entire globe. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. You're in his army already. That's not just future. You're not just waiting to don the clothes and get a horse. Right now you bear the robes of righteousness. Right now you are on the the horse of purity and holiness. Right now you are in the battle advancing His kingdom, taking the sword of the word against the opponent, the, the forces of evil. Right now you're doing that. You're not meant to be comfortable in this life. The rest comes future. 
to wage war and be in rest right now. We get to feast, then fight. There's a reason why Psalms 23 says it was, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You will comfort me. You'll be with me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice, where is God's covenant faithful towards you? All the days of your life and in his house forever. Right now, you're already in the army. You're already enrolled in the ranks. Right now, you are an extension of his army fighting the battle, waging the war against evil with the sword of the word of God. This is what will be, but also foreshadow and a reality of what is. Lastly, in this picture, we see his purpose, his purpose. We're going to just stop here in verse 16. We'll pick up verse 17 the next week. We'll look at the actual battle, but we'll finish here. We see his purpose. What are his purposes here in verses 11 through 16? First, it says that he will judge and make war in righteousness. We see that at the end of verse 11. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is important. He's not just doing to come out. He's not coming out just to throw a temper tantrum. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Meaning, everything he does in his coming, everything he does in the final judgment will be an extension of his righteousness. In our readings this week, I read this text and it's about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's this part where Abraham is pleading with the Lord. This is what he says, verses 18 through 23 of Genesis. 18, chapter 18, verse 20 through 25 of Genesis. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? To which Revelation says, you better believe he'll do what's just. You better believe he'll do what's righteous. There will be no injustice in his second coming. There will be nothing that is not perfectly allotted in the exact place that it should be. He will judge and make war in righteousness. Not in a temper tantrum. Not out of just showing what he can do. He makes war and judges in righteousness. Pictures of this are Psalm 72, Psalm 96. I love this picture of what Paul says at the Areopagus. Acts 17, 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's why it's so important that the resurrection is is so much really more for us than it was for Christ. Because Christ could have came out there secretly, didn't need the stone rolled away or anything like that. That stone rolling away, the empty tomb, that was for us. We needed to see that. Why? Because Christ not staying in the grave is an absolute declaration of the justice of God against injustice. 
his son would not see corruption because he is just. And he is righteous. And the same is true for all his people. No matter what you face in this life for the sake of Christ, you will win in the end because he will judge in righteousness. And everything will be made right in the resurrection. Secondly, we see that he has come to strike down nations. He does this with the word of his mouth there. This is pictures of Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. Those powerful messianic psalms where he will strike down the nations to rule with a rod of iron. He to tread the winepress of God's wrath. We've already saw the picture of this in Isaiah 63. All of this language of his purpose and his coming is ultimately judgment. He is coming to judge. He is coming to make war finally and fully, completely, consummately on evil. It's going to be done away with. It's going to be over. The judgment will happen. The war will be over. The new heavens and earth will be established and He will reign forever in glory. That's why He's coming. That's why He's coming. And He will be perfect in doing so. And next week, we will see how the King of Glory will flawlessly defeat His adversaries. So tonight we just got a picture of Him. And I would say the picture is enough. The picture should be enough to drive you to utter confidence in the Lord. It should make you go, this is who I belong to. This is who's on my side. This is who calls me his own. Yes. So what do I have to fear? What do I have to be afraid of? Did I get a slam door on my face? Someone chuckles or laughs at me for trying to share them about Jesus? For getting kicked off of Facebook or Instagram? For posting too many verses? That's the extent of our persecution right now. But it was this vision that caused those who were being sewn into animal skins and fed to lions and coliseums and covered in pitch and stuck to walls and set on fire to light cities. It was this vision that held them firm. My friend, you belong to a conquering king, not a docile one. He is not docile. He is a dominating king. And He will absolutely be perfect. And we will see next week as we look at the battle itself that the reason He comes the way He does, when He does, and how He does is because that in doing so, His name will be known throughout all of the cosmos. For all eternity, the name of Christ will ring forth in glory. So here's some quick takeaways here for tonight. We have a warrior for a Savior, not a wimp. I'm tired of this feminine, can't do anything, helpless, wringing his hands, wishing he could do more Jesus. That is not the Jesus that we worship. That is not the Jesus we belong to. He is a warrior king who lays waste to the devil, who, as we will see throughout Luke in those Gospels, who speaks and they leave. 
who lays hands and they are healed, who touches and they are clean, who gives peace and it's over, who speaks peace and the heart is changed, who transforms lives, who causes the lame to walk. He does that in his, in his earthly state. What do you think he does in glory? We've made him more helpless now that he's on the throne. He is a warrior, not a wimp. Do you believe that? You speak that to your heart when you feel the enemy creeping in, when you feel temptation coming over to you. I belong to a warrior who's given me power and strength to overcome this temptation, to overcome this trial, to not be afraid of this world, to speak truth to whatever it is that comes against me. He is a warrior, not a wimp. Secondly, his name will be known, feared, praised, and glorified. We're going to see that next week very clear. So I won't say much more on that. But his name will be revered throughout the cosmos. Thirdly, the battle has already begun and you're in the king's army. It's already begun. It already begun. It began the moment he said to tell us not. Because the victory, now that, that Satan was now a defeated foe. And the battle really wages. That's what, remember Revelation 12 said. He tried to kill the male child, couldn't, so now he goes after his people. He goes after the woman and her offspring, the church. That's what, because he, why? Because he knows his time's short. So the, the battle began. And you can't read the New Testament without the reality of spiritual warfare. It's all over the place. But take heart, you belong to a warrior, not a wimp. My friend, stop saying Satan, Satan, Satan. And start saying God, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the devils will flee from you when you speak Christ's name to them. Do you believe that? Because you should. I'm so sick of hearing, well, Satan made me do this and Satan made me do that. How about you start speaking Christ to your life? Start speaking Christ to your heart. The battle has already begun. And every week when we gather at this feast, a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb to come from, we come to feast and receive the life of the Lord in order to go out on Monday and begin another fight in the strength of the Lord. And we return and do it again. We feast and we fight because salvation is both. Salvation is both the embrace of love and the attack upon evil. And we do both. We rebuke evil. We speak love and we rebuke evil. Four. The safest place for the saint is in the battlefield, not the barracks. That seems counterintuitive. Because I want to stay in the comfy barracks. I want to go to the battle. But brothers and sisters, Christ is on the battlefield. I want to be where He is. The safest place in the Christian life is not in the, is not in the fighting, it's in the not fighting. It's in the not going. It's in the not praying. It's in the not being spiritually disciplined. It's not, it's not being in the Word. It's, it's thinking that I'm not in a battle. Satan would want nothing more than for you to just live a comfortable life. A comfortable, cozy life to never think for one second you're in a spiritual battle. But you are. The safest place to be is in the battlefield. Why? Because that's where the king is. 
I want to be in the battlefield. Because I know, I know the, the, the victory is guaranteed. How can you not fight when you know the outcome? You do it by, by believing safety and comforts the outcome rather than salvation. We have been taught that the gospel means comfort instead of the cross. Leonard Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill the great revivalist, he said, it is easy to get men to come to the cross, much more harder to get them on it. And that's the call of the battle. But that's where the king is. The king is in the battlefield, not the barracks. So, my closing admonition, number five, don't be a half-hearted saint fighting against a whole-hearted enemy. Don't be a half-hearted saint fighting against a whole-hearted enemy. The enemy is going to fight ruthlessly because he knows his time short. And yet we fight half-heartedly knowing our time is certain. Wrong answer. We do not fight as half-hearted saints against a whole-hearted enemy. We're going to see next week he's whole-hearted. He knows he's lost and he still tries to fight. That's what pride will do to you. So he's a wholehearted enemy. This week will you fight. Next week will you fight. Tomorrow will you fight as a wholehearted saint. Walking in the victory you have in Christ. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The word of God. He who is faithful and true. And he who has a name that one day we will know more closer and more greater than anyone can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the word. We thank you so much for the realities and the vision of Christ to help us live in light of the battle we face. God, help us be wholehearted saints daily in the battle, taking the word of God against the evils of the world, speaking against it, being unafraid and unashamed to speak the truth with love, knowing that as Christians we are called to embrace in love and attack evil. We do both. It can be hard at times. But let us not falter on either or. Let us be balanced and biblical in the way we do both. Let us fight with the word of God. Let us let all the vengeance and all the the frustrations we have, let us just surrender them to Christ. And let us continue on in the battle. Lord, gird us up with spiritual armor. And the reality of the fact that we are in a war, a great warfare. One that the victory is sure and guaranteed, but we are still called to fight. And you have given us the proper defenses and the absolutely greatest weapon that you could have ever given to go and to take your word, take your sword to the evil of this world. Lord, when you came, you did not come merely to save a couple sinners here or there. You came to reclaim what was yours. And we are a part of that, God. May we continue to march forward as a triumphal procession. May you through us bring incredible revival to this world. May you open our mouths, bolden our hearts, um, renew our minds, fortify our conviction, strengthen our resolve to live for you, to be consecrated to you day by day, all for you, God. Let all of me be all for you. God, get us out of the barracks and get us on the battlefield. 
that we might fight for Christ, for souls, for eternity, knowing the victory is guaranteed and the King who has made us his own. It's in his name we pray. Amen.